Amen. Well, church, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the associate pastors, and class is in, is in session. Masterclass, part three. And uh, if you've been, maybe you're new tonight watching, uh, but we've been going through a series on how to pray. And I can, let me just very quickly tell you that we are not the masters, those who are presenting, including me tonight. The masters are Jesus, who we learned from week one when Pastor Shaw taught. Uh, last week, Pastor AJ talked about Thanksgiving being the key that unlocks our faith and that praise and Thanksgiving changes the aroma of our faith. And tonight, we're going to look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah and Lamentations chapter 3. Now, we have given you a prayer cheat sheet, almost like a cliff notes uh, that you can use just as you're praying, just three things that are really helpful to keep in mind um, as you're praying. First is that we pray God's will by praying God's word. So we're not trying to twist God's arm to do what we really want him to do, um, but we want to pray God's will. And the primary way we do that is through praying God's word. When we pray God's word, we know we're praying his will. Secondly, we want to pray with others. All of us have probably had that experience where you're like, I'm going to pray for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, and then next thing you know, you're, you've fallen asleep. Or you know, you're, you're, you're waking up and there's some things on your pillow that from you sleeping saliva. Um, we don't want to be there. We want to pray with other people. There's something about engaging each other's faith, praying with someone where you can believe God with other people, and the faith is contagious. Lastly, we want to pray with perseverance. The enemy wants to distract you. He wants to discourage you. But we want to pray and keep praying. Pray until we see the breakthrough. Never stop praying. So that's our, our cheat sheet. And tonight we're going to talk about, here's the title, words to God when you don't have any. Words to God when you don't have any. Now, this may surprise you. Um, and perhaps in a, a series on prayer, it would be good to start with a confession. I'm a terrible dancer. I'm just let that sit with you for a second. I know it's hard to believe you think this guy standing in front of you can bust some incredible moves, but I am a terrible dancer. And middle school, high school, I was the guy posted up on the wall, you know, arms crossed like this, pretending to be cool. And when in reality, I just couldn't dance. I, I just, I hated dancing. And I realized something very quickly. That dancing wasn't going anywhere. I couldn't escape weddings. I couldn't escape dances. I mean, I, would, I was going to have many opportunities at these dancing events the rest of my life. And so I had two choices. One, to either continue to post up against the wall and be miserable the rest of my life anytime someone dances, or to lean in to my discomfort, to immerse myself in dancing and learn a few moves. Now, I can assure you, I'm still no dancing aficionado, but I have leaned in a little bit, and I can get out there on one or two songs on a, on a uh, wedding, not embarrass myself. Well, kind of not embarrass myself. But when it comes to dancing, you got to lean in. you got to embrace the discomfort. And I think when it comes to the topic we're talking about tonight, lamenting. Lamenting is a topic that is very unfamiliar to us for the most part, especially in the Western Hemisphere, in our context. We don't do a lot of lamenting. Even that word may be unfamiliar. And so we have two choices. One, to kind of just pull back and go, what in the world is this? Or two, kind of lean into our unfamiliarity, our discomfort, and learn how to lament. And I think if we do, 
It'll be incredibly healing to our souls. Tonight, we're going to look at Lamentations 3, and I know what you're probably thinking. Haven't we heard from Lamentations 3 here recently? Yes. In fact, we have had two people preach on Lamentations chapter 3. Pastor Brett preached one of the best messages I've ever heard him preach on Lamentations 3 about a year ago um, when he talked about his own experiences as an African-American man, and he lamented some of those experiences and taught us how to lament with him. And then three weeks ago, Pastor Mark shared about lamenting, and he really focused on the promises of verse 22 and 23 of this chapter. These are probably the most famous verses in Lamentations. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So Pastor Mark unpacked how we can cling to those promises in in, in the challenging times that we live in. What I want to do tonight is take a little bit different of approach. One, we're focusing more on prayer, but two, to kind of zoom out a little bit and look at the whole chapter and see what God might have for us tonight. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who welcomes our feelings. You welcome us to be authentic and raw in our prayers. And so, Lord, we ask you, Jesus, the master, to teach us how to pray through the book of Lamentations. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Words to God when you don't have any. Here's the context. Lamentations was written in response to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 BC. Now, I can just read that, and it may not mean too much to you. It sounds like just kind of a historical fact, but you gotta put yourself in the shoes of the people who are who uh, Jeremiah, the writer of Lamentations, is addressing. Second Kings 25 gives us the, the history, the context of what's happening here. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had sieged the city of Jerusalem. He'd taken the king of Judah and slaughtered his sons right before the king's eyes. He'd taken the people, Nebuchadnezzar, and he chained them and he deported them to Babylon along with the king. The the temple of God, the temple, the place where God dwelled, was raised to the ground, was burned. And so this city that was called Zion, this city that was a picture of the beauty of God, the temple, the very place where the Israelites believed God himself resided with them was destroyed all in a moment. And the Israelites are wondering, how could this happen to us? How could our God allow this pagan nation, this godless nation, this empire of Babylon to take over our our nation and to lead us into captivity? Where is our God? And here's why this book, I think, is relevant for us today. Because normally, when it comes to tragedies, we have individuals that experience tragedies. Maybe someone loses their family member in a tragic way. But it's a very rare moment where everyone is experiencing a tragedy, like right here in Lamentations. The whole city is mourning, and all that's been left is just the poor, the disadvantaged, the crippled. That's all that's left in the city. The whole nation is mourning. Now, our nation, United States, has not gone into uh, captivity. But in a very real sense, we're experiencing national suffering, even international suffering when you think of coronavirus. All of us are going through challenges. 
And so lamentation speaks to our situation, a communal lament. And that word lament might be a little unfamiliar to you. We don't use it very often. But the original uh, name for the book of Lamentations in Hebrew is this word akah, which means how. And it's not like how, like question mark. It's more like this, how, how, or in what way? It's like a cry. It's how could this happen? That's really what's at the heart of Lamentations. See, Pastor AJ talked last week about uh, praise and thanksgiving. And, and Hebrew poetry has really two poles. One is praise and thanksgiving, and the other is what we're talking about tonight, which is lament. Lament is everything negative. Lament is how do you deal with these emotions of anger and fear and depression and sadness and disappointment. And there's a couple of views about this book of Lamentations, who wrote it, but the, the consensus is Jeremiah did. But one of the views that I find most compelling is that Jeremiah assembled all of the cries and the laments of the community left there in Jerusalem in forming the book of Lamentations. The breadth of the experiences seemed to surpass just one man's experience. And so he's taking the voice of the voiceless, putting it all together, and offering it as a lament to God. But chapter 3, the chapter that we're on tonight, shifts from this third person point of view in chapters 1 and 2 to a first person point of view. Jeremiah has taken up the lament personally. He's speaking from an I, a me perspective. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read all of chapter 3 at 66 verses. I'm going to just kind of go through and highlight a few particular verses that draw out the theme of this chapter. And as we look at the first 20 verses, I want you to notice the graphic nature and the variety of analogies that Jeremiah employs to convey or to attempt to convey the pain the people are in because of this captivity. So look at verse 1. It says, I am the man who's seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. That's where Jeremiah is going to start, right there. Jeremiah says, I feel like a kid who's taking a beating from God, who's underneath the rod of correction of God. Verse two, he's driven and brought me into darkness without any light. He's saying, God has essentially brought me to a dark cave and left me with no flashlight. Look at verse five. He has besieged me and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. Those words, besieging, that was what the Babylonians did to Judah. To Jerusalem. It was a military word. It was like when an empire jumped all, all over and besieged a city. But Jeremiah says, like the ruthless Babylonians who besieged us and raised our city, God, you've invaded me. Oh, Jeremiah, you need to have a little more respect to God. I mean, this is, uh, this is God we're talking about. This isn't your friend. Like, why is Jeremiah getting so almost angry, so raw with his prayer to God. I mean, he's violating every rule that you're taught normally in church about how to approach God with reverence, how to, uh, to come to him, put together. Look at verse seven. He's walled me about so that I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. Jeremiah is saying, God has thrown me into a, present, a prison cell and he's chosen the heaviest chains 
to lock me up. It gets worse. Verse 10. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. Jeremiah said, hey, you, guys, you know when you go to the zoo and you see the lion and the bear, like those really ferocious animals that like rip open other animals? Or like when you watch Nat Geo and you see like the lions crossing the Sahara Desert and they're like taking out de- uh, the gazelle? God, you're that bear. You're that lion. And I'm like that gazelle. You're ripping me to shreds. That's how I feel. Verse 12, 12. I know I'm really messing with your theology right now, but hang with me. Verse 12. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrows. Jeremiah says, God is like an expert archer that pulls back his arrow, but his target is me. And God is not an inaccurate archer. He's a world-class archer. Because when he aims and when he shoots, Verse 13, he drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. That's how Jeremiah feels. It's as if God himself has caused this destruction. What's the result? Verse 18, so I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Here is a man who feels as if God has abandoned him and he's lost all hope. Do you ever pray to God like that? Like, do you ever get real with God about how you're really feeling? You throw out the trite expressions. You throw out all the Father God, God bless you for the food, for the God nourishment of our bodies. I mean, you throw out all the formulas because you are so empty. You are so broken that you're getting real and raw with God. You're praying what you feel. See, we've been taught, especially here in the Western Hemisphere, that feelings are bad. Throw away your feelings. Don't allow your feelings to influence how you live or how you act. But Jeremiah is actually leaning into his feelings. Because how do you even speak when you see your city destroyed? How do you even speak when you've been warning to a people over and over again that they need to repent? They don't listen. And now you're seeing the people that you love, the homeland, the people taken into captivity, the chosen people of God being taken over by ruthless pagan leaders. When someone dies, say we have a friend who, who loses a, a close loved one, we know intuitively not to offer them trite expressions, not to give them the platitudes, not to even share, I mean, if, if someone loses a, a spouse or a child tragically, the first thing you don't say is, you know what, brother, God works all things together for good, and I can't wait to see how this is going to turn out. Let me help you. Don't do that. Start by weeping with them. Start by pulling up a chair and crying with them and mourning with them and being there with them and feeling with them. And that's what Jeremiah is doing. When we pray, and we're in a moment like we are now, tell God how you feel. Have you given yourself permission over the last year or nine months, or however long it's been. Have you given yourself permission to actually feel? To actually take 
the anxiety, the fear, the depression, the confusion, the anger to God? To get graphic with God of what this season has been like for you? Because chances are, if you haven't, you, haven't, you probably haven't gone to God at all. You've probably stuffed the feelings down inside. You've probably tried to just go through it by adrenaline or by busyness. But Jeremiah invites us to get real with God, to tell God how we really feel. But we can't stay there. And that's important. Jeremiah hasn't thrown out everything he knows to be true about God. He's just suspended it for a moment. But now he's going to take a very important turn. And for all of us, we have some kind of coping mechanism, whether it's, uh, hopefully it's a healthy one, like a book or maybe a song or a movie. We've seen a hundred times. For Jeremiah, his coping mechanism is to tell God who he is. So first he tells God what he feels, and then he tells God who God is. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this portion because Pastor Mark brilliantly unpacked it and powerfully unpacked it a couple weeks ago. I'd encourage you to check out that message. But I just want to highlight maybe one or two things from this, pas- from this portion of the passage in 21 through 33. F- most famous verses, verse 21. This thing I call the mind and therefore I, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Here's what Jeremiah is saying. And if he was speaking to us, this is what I think he would say to our situation. Though it feels like this year's past pain has dragged on forever, it's God's steadfast love that never ceases. Though it feels like our trials and our suffering in this nation are unceasing, it's his mercies that never come to an end. Though it feels like we wake up every morning to a dark cloud of fear or depression, his mercies are new every morning. Though it feels like our pain and confusion and anger and anxiety are great, really what's great is God's faithfulness. God is in control. God's faithfulness will never end. He's there for us. And that's what we can cling to. That's what we can turn to. This is a big book, the Bible. It can be a little confusing. It can be hard to know where to start, where to go. And maybe you feel like, Pastor Stephen, I don't know all the words to pray to God. I barely even know my Bible. Well, this is a good opportunity to get to know the Bible a little bit more. But take even the parts that you know, a promise, a verse, a passage, whatever you can cling to and grab a hold of that. Remind God who he is. Does God need to be reminded? No. He doesn't need to be reminded. But we do. We need to be reminded of who he is so it gets in our soul. Now, like I mentioned at the outset, we're not going to go through all 66 verses. But there's another theme here in, in, in this set of verses in 21 through 33 that's a very vital byproduct of telling God who he is. Look at verse 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. See, Jeremiah is introducing this theme of waiting. And none of us really like waiting. I mean, last week, as a part of our Every Nation fast, our awesome God study, we looked at the attributes of God. 
And one thing about God is he's merciful. He's patient. He's patient. He could give us what we deserve, and yet he chooses not to. He gives us time to repent and to turn to him. And why does Jeremiah think that it's good that we wait for him? Because sometimes you have those promises, things that you're believing God for, and you don't see them happen immediately. But in the waiting, we become like him. That's what prayer is really all about. It's not so much about God giving us what we want, but it's about God making us into what he wants. Do I wish coronavirus was over like in last spring? We were praying for God to end it last spring. Yes, of course I do. I'm tired of wearing the mask. I'm tired of all the regulations and things like that. I like to take off the masks and all that, but hear me. God is doing something in us as a result of this season, as a result of this waiting. I don't have all the answers for why so many people have died, why very close loved ones of ours have passed away. There's no easy answers to that. It doesn't make it any less painful. But I know God is doing something through you, through me, in this season, in our waiting, in our waiting for our deliverance, God is producing a patience in us that resembles his patience. That's what he's after, to make his people look like himself. After you tell God how you feel, tell God who he is. And then lastly, tell God it's in his hands. Tell God it's in his hands. Look at verses 34 through 66, this last portion here. Now, Jeremiah, he's navigating a very complicated, painful situation. We talked about that here moments ago. God's chosen people, they've been defeated by this pagan, ruthless, godless nation, and surely someone deserves the blame. How does he interpret what's going on here? And in our, our situation right now, I mean, we have some, a lot of complicated things happening, a lot of painful things happening. Racial tensions, the history of which is 400 years old, coronavirus, and all the various studies out there and debate about where it came from and, and who's at fault. The political division that's multi-layered, that's complex. There's this, a myriad of, of talking heads. How do we interpret who's at fault, who's to blame? Well, maybe looking for someone to blame is probably not the best starting place. Do we pray for God's judgment to fall on those who appear unrighteous? Well, here's what Jeremiah says in verse 40. He says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hands, our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We've transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. See, Jeremiah warned of this day as a prophet. He told the people if they did not repent, this would happen. There was a long line of prophets who warned God's people that judgment was on the way. And then here it was. Do we deserve the, the situation that we're in? Racial tension, political division, worldwide pandemic? Well, the, I, I don't know, but the Bible says we actually deserve a lot worse. We deserve to be separated from God forever. We deserve eternal damnation because of our sins. If we want to 
point the finger, if we want to look for someone to blame, where we need to start is ourselves in our own hearts. We need to examine our own hearts. If God is truly holy, which we know he is, if he's just, that's a terrifying thing for you and I. Say, but, but yeah, but in Jeremiah's day, well, what about this ruthless, godless Babylonian empire that would enslave the, the people of Judah for 70 years? Surely they're not better than the people that they are enslaving? What about, in our day, the political leaders that we have? What about that, those people on social media and their ignorance? What about the people for, that are responsible in our minds for the situation? Look at verse 64 how Jeremiah ends this passage. He says, you will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. See, Jeremiah takes all of the justice and places it right where it deserves to be placed, in God's hands. God will take care of that. God is the only one that can play 10-dimensional chess and figure all this out. Who's to blame? Who's at fault? And God will take care of what he needs to take care of. But for us, our posture needs to be mercy. Maybe in this season, there's, there's some bitterness. There's some anger towards people, towards the situation. When you place it in God's hands, you're releasing yourself of that bitterness and of that anger. Now, one very important feature of this chapter that I haven't mentioned is this is, remember, this is a chapter of how to pray in the midst of chaos. Words to God when there are no words. Chapters one, two, and four of Lamentations are called an acrostic. There are 22 verses in chapters one, chapters two, and chapters four. And each verse corresponds to one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, starting with the first letter, Aleph, and ending with the last letter, Tav. So each verse follows that Hebrew alphabet. And then you get to chapter 3, and it's three times that amount, 66 verses. But it still follows that same acrostic pattern. The first three verses, Aleph. The second three verses, Bet. And it goes all the way to the Hebrew alphabet. And the, the meaning there, it's, it's not as obvious in English, but the meaning there is that this is suffering to the fullest extent. In chapters 1, 2, and 4, he's using these acrostics to, to share about the suffering of the people. Chapter 3, it's to the, to the max. And yet there's also a subtle order to the chaos. In the midst of him crying out, in the midst of him mourning and lamenting, there's still this beautiful order of this acrostic. And we're at this vantage point in the redemptive arc of God's storyline after the cross where we can look back and know that there is a redemptive storyline that God has resolved in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into this world and fulfilled God's plan by dying. What words did Jesus say when he died on the cross? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He told God how he felt. Then he says, it is finished. He told God who he was 
who God was, the redemptive story writer. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In his last words before his death, he places it all back in God's hands. It's a template he gave us, the same one that Jeremiah gave us. To tell God how we feel, to tell God who he is, and to place it back in God's hands. This is how you say words to God when there there are no words. Now in a moment, we're going to hop on a Zoom call. And we're going to practice. And I'd imagine practicing lamenting is going to be, it might be like showing up at a middle school or a high school dance for you if you don't dance. It might be a little uncomfortable. It might be a little unnatural. But in a moment here, we're going to practice lamenting in a community and asking God to meet us in a powerful way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a great God. And Lord, even in the midst of the chaos, there is order. There's order in the fact that you sent your son Jesus who took the punishment that we deserve. And Lord, we look to him, the one who felt more pain than we could ever have felt. The one who was motivated and inspired and moved by who you are. The one who trusted you and placed your plan in your hands. Lord, we imitate our master Jesus tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.